Welcome to Sense and Sensibility, the Inflation Guy podcast, episode number three. I am Michael Ashton. I am the Inflation Guy, and I am your host. And I'm doing something a little bit different uh, today. I've I, I haven't had a long enough time to establish a trend. I guess this is only the third episode, but. Uh, but this today I'm going to talk about something that's a little more short-term in nature. I want to talk about uh, Chairman Powell and his speech at Jackson Hole uh, and specifically look at some of the things that, from, as, as an inflation guy, what I tend to look at in the speech. And, you know, long before I was an inflation guy, I was a, um, you know, a Fed watcher. Um, and I will say that over the last five to ten years, I've done very little reading of these speeches because they pretty much have all been about the same, not a whole lot of content in any of them. And, and, you know, we sort of knew what the Fed was doing. So there wasn't really any mystery, not really worth reading. But now we're thinking about whether or not the Fed is going to taper. And after they taper, are they going to hike rates? And it comes down to how are they thinking about things? You know, we, we, we've got central bank policy colliding with reality and and trying to figure out what comes out of that. So every year, the Federal Reserve has this colloquium at Jackson Hole. And traditionally, over the last decade or decade and a half, uh, that has been where the Fed chairman, when they gave their speech, would re- announce changes to operating policy or give little hints and clues about how the Fed was thinking. So today, Chairman Powell, in a much anticipated speech, uh, spoke about monetary policy in the time of COVID, with everybody waiting with bated breath, of course, to see whether or not he would tell us that the Fed is going to start tapering later this year or maybe next year or maybe not at all or maybe he wouldn't mention it at all. And uh, and so that was really the the topic. And, and the market in the last week or so had kind of started to trade as if we knew that he was going to be somewhat dovish and put off the time of tapering um, or at least speak about it in a dovish way. And we were not surprised by that. But again, I want to look at it from the inflation guy. I want to look at what he said and whether or not I think the Fed is thinking about inflation uh, and growth, but especially inflation in the right way. And and unfortunately, I have to sort of report, having read this, that I think that the speech is a combination of misunderstandings, misdirections, misinformation even, and, and I might even go so far as to say mendacity. So let's dive right into the speech, and I will point out the uh, some of the things that I read and what I think about them. So uh, very helpfully, there's a section of the speech that says uh, that is the path ahead on inflation and, and what Powell sees about that. So, you know, he has several different subcategories, and, and one of the, the places he takes Comfort is the absence so far of broad-based inflation pressures. Um, He says, the spike in inflation is so far largely the product of a relatively narrow group of goods and services that have been directly affected by the pandemic and the reopening of the economy. Now, I've spoken about this recently and I've written about it. 
and and that's it's partially true but it's it's very much a straw man that used car prices and airline fares have been a large part of of the recent large you know outsized increases in inflation but if you dig down at all you also notice there has been much more broadening many more categories now are are accelerating than has been the true for quite some time the you know our inflation index the enduring investments uh, inflation diffusion index is at the highest level it has been since basically the global financial crisis just about um, it is clearly broadening as well and that's okay so maybe that's just a misunderstanding i don't know the next thing he says bothers me a lot because it's 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 just untrue. He says the the 12-month window we use in computing inflation now captures the rebound in prices but not the initial decline temporarily elevating reported inflation. Now that's simply a lie. The rebound in prices in in 2020 peaked in July of 2020, which is no longer in the 12-month look back period. So you know, this last, so July 2020, core inflation was up 0.54%. And and so I thought earlier in this year, I said, look, I think we're going to reach our peak of core inflation in, you know, around July because, you know, the, the comps kind of got difficult in June and July. But we've now got past the highest comp. And so now going forward, actually, no, the, the decline and the rebound are both in the data. And so this is just false. Now, interestingly, earlier in this speech, he has a footnote where he says that only one of his stats included July 2021 and the rest were as of June. And there's no reason to do that. You've got plenty of economists at the Fed. The only reason to do that and to make everything as of June is so that you can make this statement. Okay. If you do everything as of June, then it's true that the 12-month window that you that you use in computing inflation still would include uh, July 2020. It doesn't anymore. So that's that's borderline deceitful. Um, in any case, though, the last five months of core inflation were 0.34%, 0.92%, 0.74%, 0.88%, and 0.33% month-on-month numbers. You don't have to look at the year-on-year numbers. You know, I kind of thought that was going to be something that was going to be distracting, but we have month-on-month numbers that are plenty high enough to get you concerned, ignoring what happened in 2020. So you don't have to you don't have to worry about base effects anymore to make the case that inflation is rising. Again, this statement bothers me a lot because it 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 smacks of being just plain a, a lie. Clearly, it's something that that the Fed knows that if you calculate everything on the basis of July, then that rebound is done. The rebound is all in the data as well. He says, we consult a range of measures meant to capture whether price increases for particular items are spilling over into broad-based inflation. These include trim mean measures and measures excluding durables and computed from just before the pandemic. These measures generally show inflation at or close to our 2% longer run objective. Okay, so it makes sense that, and I've written about this too, you know, core inflation 
is is polluted by large moves in some of these categories like used vehicles. That's kind of the obvious one. But median, and so historically, and actually for years now, I have focused on median inflation because that doesn't tend to be polluted by these, these one-off outliers. Median inflation just had its largest month-on-month -month change in two years. And so even though year-on-year -year is, is still not very high, month-on-month um, -month has shown some, um, some tendency to uptick. And moreover, the, we know that the sticky inflation and the median inflation, um, you know, some of these other measures are polluted by something we know is wrong, and that is rents. We know that, that because of the eviction moratorium, rental inflation is understated. We know that it's understated. There's no question that it's understated and there's no question it's going to accelerate. And so relying on an index that you know, okay, yeah, it doesn't have these outliers, but on the other hand, it includes outliers the other direction is a little bit dishonest. But, you know, I can sort of let that slide a little bit. I think it's wrong, but I don't think necessarily isn't, you know, it's not necessarily deceitfully wrong. Um, he says in the same section here, he says, today we see little evidence of wage increases that might threaten excessive inflation. Well, they're not looking very hard. Um, certainly some of the indices, the Atlanta Fed uh, wage, uh, wage indicator, um, the uh, average hourly earnings, they're not showing, you know, the employment cost index aren't showing a sudden surge higher. But if you talk to anybody on the street and if you, you know, this is stuff is in their their regional surveys, you know that that particularly at the lower end of the wage spectrum, there are massive increases of wages. I have a couple of customers who are who each have reported to me they're seeing 20 percent and higher increases in the hourly wage that they have to pay to lower wage earners. And these are industrial concerns, not, not service, uh, not, not waiters. Um, so, uh, you know, if you say you see little evidence of wage increases and you're focusing on the Atlanta Fed index, which takes people who have been continuously employed, you know, over 12 months, um, then, Okay, that's probably not the place you're seeing the wage pressure, but there is clearly wage pressure happening. All right, so that's so then kind of moving a little bit forward uh, again in sort of the path forward to inflation. There's a section: the prevalence of global disinflationary forces over the past quarter century. And again, these, these are a list of things that that are the reasons that Powell isn't concerned. By the way, I will say if if you feel the need to make a list of why you're not concerned. That might be a tell that you are, in fact, concerned. If you have to make a list to, to tell yourself to calm down, you're probably stressed. But anyway, in the, in the list of global disinflationary forces over the past quarter century, uh, he includes this chestnut that we've all seen a million times. The pattern of low inflation likely reflects sustained disinflationary forces, including technology, globalization, and perhaps demographic factors, as well as a stronger and more success successful commitment by central banks to maintain price stability. Okay, so I'm not going to guffaw at the last part about the commitment to maintain price stability, because that's obviously what we're seeing today is has nothing to do with a commitment to maintain price stability. But, but it's also, 
a sort of misunderstanding. And again, this is a widely, I think this is just a misunderstanding, but it's a widely held misunderstanding. The main disinflationary force has been a one-off force, a long-term one-off effect, um, and it's been the broadening of global trade. And you can sort of see this very clearly if you look at back in the early 90s, you do a plot of the number of bilateral trade agreements, and you'll see that it was kind of like nothing until the Berlin Wall fell and a couple of years later, and then about 92, 93, you suddenly saw the number of bilateral trade agreements skyrocket. About that time, inflation suddenly started underperforming what all the models said it should be doing. That's not coincidental. There is very little evidence out there to suggest that technology has restrained inflation any more than 80s technology restrained 80s inflation or 60s technology restrained 60s uh, inflation. There's always technology. And at some level, it always restrains inflation. The question is, has today's technology restrained it by more than always in the past? And there just really isn't a whole lot of evidence to suggest that's the case. I know it sounds like it should be the case. But there's just not a lot of evidence. And there's no evidence that demographics has lowered inflation. I know we look at, at Japan and we say, well, bad demographics look bad inflation. But there's also been no money supply growth in Japan for, you know, 30 years. And it might have something to do with money. So when you tease out all these different effects, it's very hard to show that demographics actually has a depressing effect on inflation. And, and arguably, from a theoretical standpoint, it's not clear that it should anyway, because you take people out of the workforce, you decrease the supply of labor. I mean, heck, that's what people are arguing now. One of the reasons we're seeing inflation is that we don't have enough people in the workforce and it's hard to hire. Well, okay, that's what also happens when people get old and, get, and retire, is you have exactly the same problem, that you don't have enough labor. And so it's not clear at all that an aging demographic is disinflationary. Uh, and again, the evidence for it is is pretty uh, pretty scant. Uh, maybe 30 years from now, with a lot more data, we'll, we'll have a better understanding of that, but we don't right now. Now, Powell says, while the underlying global disfla- disinflationary factors are likely to evolve over time, well, that makes sense, There is little reason to think that they have suddenly reversed or abated. Look, if you think, as I do, that the the globalization factors are the important part of the disinflationary uh, pressure over the last 30 years, then yeah, there sure is heck a good reason to think they've suddenly reversed or abated. Every uh, every way you want to look at global mobility um, and global trade, it looks horrible. I mean, it is totally reversed. I kind of thought, honestly, I said it would at the beginning of the Trump administration. I sort of thought that, you know, the the America first thing was effectively a a deglobalization push. I thought it would have more of an effect than it, it ended up having. But there's little question in my mind that, you know, COVID accelerated all those trends. And I think that deglobalization... Uh, if you want to look at macroeconomic factors, is likely to put more upward pressure on inflation. Certainly, you know, Powell's not worried about the sudden reversals. That's a great example of one that there really has been a sudden reversal. So that's sort of his inflation section. Now, real quickly, let me just give you the from 40,000 feet what this means and what he sort of says and reading between the lines what he says about the taper and about the future increase in rates. So the Fed had said that we needed to see substantial further progress about inflation 
and substantial further progress on uh, towards maximum employment. Uh, Powell says, you know, we've probably got there on inflation. Inflation is now high enough. Yeah, surprise. Um, but that we, while we're making progress towards maximum employment, we've got a ways to go. He specifically says we have much ground to cover to reach maximum employment. And while he does say that, you know, at various places that, oh, you know, we think if we're, if our forecasts are right, then, you know, unemployment's going to be down and, and we could probably start tapering, you know, later this year. He sounds very half-hearted about it. Um, right at the beginning of his speech, he talks about the disproportionate effect that unemployment has on uh, lesser uh, privileged uh, uh, demographics, um, uh, lesser privileged populations, and and that's a huge, a huge concern for the Fed. It has been since Yellen. Um, the Fed is it is fully involved in social adjustment policy. It's not part of their purview, but that's the way they look at it, and that's the reason that un, un, that unemployment is much more important to them now than inflation. Is that they they think their job is to get every single able-bodied person to work. Um, to me, that says that while they might have hard, if if all the regional Fed presidents get together and say, Jerome, we've got to start tapering, then maybe he'll accede to start a taper later this year. But I don't think it's going to last very long because with the when the taper starts, markets are not going to do well. And what the Fed has shown many times is that uh, over the last couple of decades is they have no stomach for equity market corrections. And so I don't believe that they will continue to taper once they've started tapering. And raising interest rates, I would not I would not spend a lot of time worrying about that yet. We've got a ways to go. Inflation has to really start to alarm them before I think they're going to to be terribly concerned about lifting rates back up to something that we used to consider neutral. So that's all I have to say about Jerome today. Uh, thanks for tuning in to Sense and Sensibility. Uh, I am Michael Ashton. I am the Inflation Guy. You know, if you have any thoughts about about this particular mode of uh, of the podcast, instead of having a you know more of a, a a discussion as we did in episode two about the diamond water paradox and what that means for inflation or some of the other things we're going to do, you know, why the consumer price index, is, you know, how it's made and, and why it matters, things like that. Uh, if you're more interested in sort of, you know, short-term policy perspectives, then, um, then let me know. You can get the Inflation Guy app and send me a note from within the Inflation Guy app, or you can go to EnduringInvestments.com and send a a note to me from the, uh, the form there, the contact form. Uh, but I do appreciate you, you tuning in, and I look forward to your feedback. Defend your money. And if inflation is coming for you, remember, you know a guy.